Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through their industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have Christopher Tarantino, Resilience Innovator, CEO and founder of Epicenter Innovation. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Thanks so much, AJ. I'm really excited to be here. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Welcome to India. And I'm sure a lot of people will benefit from whatever you have to say on resilience, innovation, and about even Epicenter Innovation and what it does. So to understand from you about the interconnectedness between resilience and innovation, we learn from you is what should one understand? We have our own understanding of resilience, our own understanding of innovations and innovators. But for the sake of this discussion, what exactly should we understand from you about resilience, about innovation? What are these things about? Yeah, so the first thing to know is that both resilience and innovation are deeply personal concepts. Everyone has a different breed. Everyone has a different uh, approach. Everyone has a different style. And what we've learned in, in our research over the last few years is that everyone has a unique type of what we call resilience innovation. And so we've come up with this term resilience innovators to describe the combination of the two as a combined competency. But I think your question is really, you know, what are these two concepts and how do we apply them? So the traditional definition of resilience is to bounce back from something. The word actually comes from uh, metallurgy and physics. So if I put a force on a piece of metal, how likely is it to get back to where it was? Um, that's how we get those terms. And that's how we've pretty much applied them uh, to our everyday lives, whether we're talking about psychology or our business or whatever it may be, even society after a major disaster. We use the word resilience that way. Um, in doing our research, we found that that definition was really incomplete because there's also opportunity in disaster. And that's what started us down the path of articulating the interconnectedness between resilience and innovation. So innovation, when people think of that, they think of uh, inventiveness, they think of process uh, design, they think of, usually they think of Silicon Valley and you know large corporations and things like that. But for us, the concept of innovation, like I said, is, is deeply, deeply personal. And so everyone brings a different style or breed of innovation to this conversation. And it allows us, when we understand that more effectively, uh, it allows us to better articulate where we're going in the conversation of innovation, of advancement. And so if we want to get better as a result of crisis and not just bounce back, then we have to understand how those two things play together. Right, right. Let us understand it better through epicenter innovation. What sure. epicenter innovation does and where, again, these two things, innovation and fit into epicenter innovation. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, epicenter innovation was formed in 2013. We initially started as a training company uh, with a focus on emergency management. So we would help government and quasi government agencies uh, respond more effectively to disasters. And we'd help them before with training, consulting, coaching, things like that. Uh, during, we have a deployment support unit, which provides staffing to large-scale organizations, uh, not just in the public sector, but the private sector as well, to help them respond and adapt and innovate more effectively during a crisis. 
And then also working afterwards, coaching people through lessons learned, workshops, training, uh, coordinating with other agencies to help them be more effective. And then the final thing that we do is we actually work with tech and innovation companies in the public safety space to help them with their advancement of technology uh, to help you know, public safety, emergency and disaster management professionals and those types of things. So our whole focus is on people. We recognize that there's a lot of things that happen during a crisis or during a disaster that are not related to people. There's you know, disaster mitigation work, there's debris removal. We were all involved in that, but we recognize the importance and the uh, criticality of the human element of disasters. So what we say is we work in the human-centered, resilience-focused innovation business. And that's what led us to do the research on resilience and innovation in the first place. Right, right. Now, if you talk about innovation, is, is your innovation related more to disaster, before disaster and after that? Where does the real innovation come in within epicenter innovation? Because yeah. you have a lot of startups, enterprise, and, and your government organizations also are part of your of your organization. And then you also work with organizations like Google, Cisco, Pema, and other recognizable brands across the globe. So how does this innovation fit into the real innovation, or you can say the different type of innovation that people are generally familiar with that goes on as you said earlier, it's Silicon Valley and other places across the globe. How do you bring those two things together? How should a person like me, who is away, far away in India, lot of entrepreneurs, startups who are there, who may want to be part of your organization, join your organization, how do they find that fit to be able to make the best benefit out of your epicenter innovation? I love that question, AJ. So uh, the thing that we've learned is that resilience is uh, built from within. And so while we have been working with large organizations, like you mentioned, FEMA, you know, we've, we've done training at Google's headquarters. We work with nonprofits, healthcare organizations. It's pretty obvious for how they can use us because we work in the disaster space. They work in the disaster space. We help them innovate. We help them accomplish their, their goals more effectively help them adapt uh, before, during, and after major crisis. That's not super applicable to everybody around the world, and we knew that. So one of the things that we looked at in our research was we wanted to better understand, one, could we evaluate, could we quantify and qualify resilience as a concept, right? And then we wanted to better understand a person's resilience quotient is what we call it, basically. Can you uh, share your resilience with other people? So when I have a resilient person on my team, are they contributing in such a way that the organization or the team themselves is actually better as a result of them being on my team? That was a question that we had. We had an inkling that, you know, if we had more resilient people on our teams, that we would be more effective, but we didn't necessarily have the data to back that up. And so we worked with a business psychology firm. We interviewed uh, dozens of resilience builders from all around the world, all across different sectors. And we, we started to ask questions related to that. And what came out of it was actually uh, a few things. We came out was uh, an assessment. We ended up building an assessment to, to further understand these things. And the assessment's called the Resilience Innovator Type Assessment. Uh, it was launched last year, um, has been used all over the world. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how many countries, but quite a few. Um, and what came out of the research showed us that indeed you can share your resilience with other people. 
as long as you score high in three areas, we identified sociability, grit, and attitude. Uh, but that further than that, there's also 10 unique different types or styles of resilience innovators that are out there uh, that all show up differently before, during, and after crisis. And the key there is that you have to know that information. You have to be familiar with yourself. You have to be completely self-aware and, and comfortable with your team. You have to work in an environment that has psychological safety. You have to build all of those foundational elements before you ever experience a crisis. You can't do it, uh, you know, working from a deficit after the bad thing happens. Right. Right, uh, Christopher. Now, let's look at it this way. Your type of innovation and the innovation that happens outside your organization, mostly in the public uh, private sector space. In your type of innovation, you talk about resilience. And along with that, there is innovation. In outside world or in startups or even at Silicon Valley, there is this concept called that if you have to fail, fail fast. And here you talk about resilience to continue being at something that you believe in or that you feel that has value enough. How does this innovation or resilient innovation fit into those big companies that you work with? How do, because these are two different, uh, not opposite concepts, but two different ways of thinking. How does these two meet? How do people make the best out of your resilience innovation? even in the private space, because you talk about resilience as a competitive advantage. Help us understand, because this is certainly a new concept, and even I'm trying to understand it to the best of my abilities, though it is very fascinating, I must say. Sure. Yeah, the, uh, the idea of failure is something that I think uh, large and small companies, individuals from all around the world, uh, we struggle with, because the idea is we, we see the outcome a lot of times both in the corporate world and in the personal development world of someone's labors. We see that they succeed. We see that they achieve. We see these things in the media, on you know social channels, wherever you might see it. You don't always see the failures that go into it. And we've been taught lots of times, there's countless books about it, countless case studies that failure is a part of success. Uh, but failure is a not just a part of success and not a part of innovation. It's critical to innovation because innovation is mostly failure. And so what we have to do in our work is we have to train individuals and organizations to be more comfortable with failure. And yeah, the concept of fail fast is, uh, is interesting. You know, it's, it's something that's talked about quite a bit. I don't necessarily disagree with it. You know, if you're gonna fail, you may as well fail early and you may as well learn from that failure and then grow from that failure. I think that's the underlying theme of that quote. But I think it's it's uh, a little bit of a simplification in terms of what that process looks like, because most people think of innovation as this disruptive, game changing, earth shattering concept. And that's actually the minority when it comes to innovation. Most innovations are incremental. So when you think of like the, the disruptive innovation, uh, I've heard it described as, as the light bulb innovation, right? It's something that didn't exist before. And because of your work, because of your research, whatever, now it exists. And that's that's super powerful. And it's very interesting. It's super newsworthy, right? That shows up in the papers. It shows up on, you know, on the first page of Google. The ma majority of people, though, aren't working on projects that are related to disruptive innovation. And that's okay. 
because the only way that the whole world, all of our societal elements and all of the organizations that we're, we're thinking about here, the only way that they all get better is through incremental innovation, through that kind of process-based innovation where we take something that exists now and we make it just a little bit better. And if we do that over time, that effort compounds in such a way that it does become uh, disruptive and it can completely change the way that we did things. If you think of like the workforce and the changes that happened as a result of the COVID pandemic, uh, there was a lot of good that came out of COVID in terms of innovation. Uh, some of it was indeed disruptive, but most of it was process-based. Most of it was stuff that, you know, you had to go into an office in order to complete this task previously, or you had to do something that would take 10 hours and you'd have to go and find five different locations and seek out a bunch of different resources. And then it became a web form and it took you 30 seconds. Um, that's that's process-based innovation and that changes things in a great way. It also makes us more productive. It makes us more competitive. It gives us more satisfaction in our jobs. So that's the innovation side of that. The foundation though, and, and what we found in our research is that if you try to innovate from an unstable foundation, if your people are not resilient, if you don't have psychological safety within your teams and your organizations, that you're gonna be innovating and you could build that tower nice and high and have all sorts of really cool products and services and an impact that means something. But if you can crumble after one crisis, even if it's not an organizational or a regional crisis, but one of a, a key individual, key person, key executive, then what, what's the point in building all of that stuff if you're, if you're left vulnerable? So the idea is that you look at your resilience uh, quotient of your people first, you look at that foundation that you're building from, and then you know which direction that you should innovate in. Right, right, Christopher. Now, in terms of resilient innovation, you work with the government sector, you work with the big companies, private companies also, and smart, smart startups and all. And then there is the large-scale disasters. And then we talk about failure, risk, risk-taking risk ability. In government, there is hardly that risk-taking ability. There is not much of uh, innovation that is there. But, and in private, it is different. There they can do, they continue to do, and they, they come out with different uh, new stuff. But when there is a large-scale disaster, it is the government which has to handle it not the private organization it's the even in terms of covid or it was the governments all across the private companies came in but it so how does it work how do you make them uh, inject this sort of a uh, risk taking ability within the government systems which have been designed or mentally they are like that or bureaucratic you can say that they have become risk averse so how does this resilient innovation come in and how does it help them to be prepared for large-scale disasters which are a part of our human life they are yeah the uh the concept of risk and decision making and how we all perceive risk differently has uh been an obsession of mine for for more than a decade uh i've, I've dedicated my life to studying how people perceive risk how and then what they do with that information and you're right, traditionally government agencies and, and even large corporations uh, in some respects are much slower to appreciate the value of risk taking uh, because it is inherently risky, right? Uh, risk taking has benefit and rewards and I think everyone knows that. 
However, the effort that you uh, provide or the risk that you take is not always pay paid back to you one-to-one -one, uh, or in, in multiples after you, know, you take that risk. So when government agencies are criticized for their lack of risk-taking ability or their lack of innovation, uh, I understand. And I don't completely disagree because they, they absolutely have lagged in the past. However, uh, we have seen the ability of governments and large corporations, I'll use the COVID example again, to innovate in, in crisis because they need to. So I think what, what ends up happening is, and the reason why the, the connectedness between resilience and innovation is so profound to me in looking at all of that, is that when you experience a crisis, when you experience disaster, either personally or within these large organizations, you're left with a choice. You can choose to fold, you can choose to collapse, or you can choose to do something about it. And the progression there is you first have to get to a survival standpoint, right? Like you can't help anybody and you can't necessarily take advantage of opportunity if you're not even in a survival state yet. You have to get to safety first and foremost. So that's always the first goal in large scale disasters, right? Is save the people as much as you can. Uh, so life-saving efforts take priority. But then we have opportunities to do other things. Can we get creative with, with what we're doing, with our response measures, with our uh, way that we process our work, with the way that we work with our people and collaborate together, uh, with the way that we leverage our partners? There's obviously much more creative opportunity when we're not in the survival state. So when we go from that survive to thrive mentality, that's when we can start to get a little bit more effective with our innovation techniques. So the question you asked is, how do you teach them that? And the key there is to remember that governments, just like other organizations, just like small startups that are scrappy and innovative and, and highly uh, risk accepting, those organizations that are highly risk averse are still made of people. And the people have been conditioned oftentimes by a culture that's not necessarily accepting of risk. And that, in some cases, is a good thing. Um, I work with a lot of disaster management agencies. They wouldn't be very good emergency managers if they accepted every risk. You have, you're already at a, a deficit. You're already working from a deficient standpoint in the middle of a disaster. If we just took every risk that was possible, we probably wouldn't recover very effectively from those disasters. So it makes sense that they are more on the late majority laggard end of that scale. Um, however, they can be taught. And so what we teach them is there are ways, there are time periods, and there are strategies to innovate before, during, and after crisis that can be more comfortable as long as you know how to make those decisions and as long as you know how to weigh the cost-benefit analysis of, of taking those risks. Right. Right, Christopher. Uh, in terms of when you talk to this private sector as well as the public sector companies, uh, organizations, how do you do that pitch part? Because a private company will understand the competitive advantage. They will understand about, you know, personal and professional development, enhanced performance, team building strategies. Whereas these words will be a bit different or almost alien to government organizations. That's they are so big. How do you pitch resilient innovation to these two different sets of, you know, tar your target? So now, now that we have the data and the research that we've done, uh, I'd say my pitch is quite a bit different. Uh, before it was, it was very much like, look, you know that the industry 
uh, private sector startups, you know that these groups are out innovating you. You know that consumer technology can sometimes outpace the technologies that governments are using, and that's just not acceptable. Um, and there are quite a few government innovators that are on board with that. They know that, right? And it's not hard to see when you look out and you can have a better experience on your banking uh, mobile app, or you know when you go to the grocery store, they have better technology than you have when you go and you register your motor vehicle. It's not hard to see the comparison between those two worlds to say, hey, one of these groups is innovative and the other is not. There are quite a few people in government that are kind of beating that drum and getting you know more on board with that. And because the disparity between those two worlds is, is ever growing. Um, the, the divide between private sector and public sector innovation uh, has been getting worse for a while, but I don't think it's hopeless. So the pitch now is, is actually a little bit more personal. So now that we have the research into resilience, innovation, we have those 10 resilience innovator types that we learned through our assessment research. Um, now that we have the resilience innovator type assessment, we actually put people through that and then talk to them in terms that make sense that are uniquely uh, tailored to their needs, to their expectations, to their preferences and to their attitudes. So for me, for example, um, when I took the assessment, I came out as a warrior. So there, there are 10 types um, and the 10 types are, uh, they different. They, they show up differently before, during and after crisis. You have the explorer, you have the warrior, the guardian, the maverick, the influencer, you have the stoic, the harmonizer, um, and, and then you have the, uh, the architect and the reflector. So those are the 10 types that came out of our research and they're based on this model that uh, articulates how you show up, not just in crisis though. So we did all this research focusing on crisis, but what came out of it was a workplace kind of professional development model um, that, uh, you know, that really enhances how you work with people before, during, and after crisis, whether you're dealing with a crisis or not. So what we do is we'll put someone through that assessment and then we'll say, okay, based on your type, this is how you can most effectively innovate. Can you think of a time where that's worked well for you and your department or your agency or your team, whatever? And then they start to think about, oh, yeah, that's actually happening. And they become a little bit more conscious, a little bit more aware of the innovation environment that they're in. Then we start to have them ask, OK, uh, what challenges have you run into when you tried to innovate? What are the barriers that are in place when you when you have that uh, you know, experience? If you're trying to push innovation uh, in one way and the rest of your team is trying to push innovation in another way, then you're going to have a hard time. Um, I talk a lot about, you know, the difference between these types because they exist on opposite scales. And so when we see the research, certain types tend to gravitate towards certain industries. It's not completely uniform, uh, but you have the traditionalist on one side and the explorer on the other side. The, their openness to experience is totally, totally different. The traditionalist understands that we shouldn't necessarily break all the rules because the rules are there for a reason. The explorer has never met a rule that they haven't enjoyed breaking. And so those two people can't, they, they, it's not that they can't work together. It just means that they have to respect their differences and understand that together they could be very effective at, at innovating as long as they respect their differences, as long as they respect their unique strengths. The other one that I like to compare a lot of time uh, from the resilience innovator type assessment results, these two archetypes are the architect and uh, the maverick. The architect is your token planner. They're the ones that are working ahead, building policy, working on procedure, 
they they like to dot the i's cross the t's write the plans whereas the maverick they don't want any sort of paperwork they just want to fix the problem and again it's not that one of those is better than the other but you can understand that if i put a maverick in a role that was designed for an architect if they're if they're in a planning role they may really really struggle although they may also come up with some new ways of doing things that an architect wouldn't necessarily think of and vice versa. If you put a planner in a role that was designed for a maverick, they're you know deep in operations, they're solving problems left and right, they don't even have a chance or an opportunity to, to document what they're doing, they may struggle, they may get stressed, they may feel fatigued. However, they may come up with different ways of doing things that the other individual may not. So my point here is that the uniqueness of our styles and the uniqueness of those archetypes is something that when you're furnished with those, when you have an opportunity to add that to your shared language as a team, everybody gets better. Everybody grows more innovative. Everybody grows more resilient. And as a whole, your organization becomes more sustainable. And our pitch is that more sustainable organizations, more resilient people, that drives safer communities. Wonderful, wonderful. This is quite interesting. Resilience Innovator Type Assessment, Rita. So how do people make use of this? What's the best way to go about it and make use of this and find out if they are a maverick or the architect type or, and many other more? I'd love to know what type you are, AJ. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a warrior uh, and anyone can take the assessment. So it's publicly available. All you have to do is just go to resilience-innovator.com and that'll take you there. Um, and what we can do is, uh, you, you go to that website, you'll register for an account, you'll fill out a couple pieces of information. The assessment itself takes 20 to 25 minutes. Um, it is not a short quiz. It's, it's a lengthy personality assessment backed by research. There's a lot to it. Uh, so set some time aside to take it. It's best on a desktop. It's completed in English, just so you're aware. Um, and within, you know, five minutes or so of taking the assessment, you'll actually get your results. Um, so there's two parts of the assessment. There's the personality questionnaire, which will give you your type. It'll also give you uh, a ranking of the 50 key traits that we learn drive both resilience and innovation. And then it'll give you your five top strengths. And then the second part of the assessment uh, is what we call the situational judgment test. That actually puts you in some behavioral scenarios and asks you what would be most and least like you. Uh, and based on those results, that gives us the resilience conditions. Uh, which the sociability, grit, and attitude that I talked about earlier. Um, so you'll get a score on those three attributes as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. And how do people connect with you, Christopher? Yeah, so uh, you can find my contact information on that website, resilience-innovator.com. The best way, though, to get me individually would be on LinkedIn. You could just search Christopher Tarantino. There are a couple others on there. It's not. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a pretty rare name, but there are a couple of us. Uh, I'll just be the one with uh, usually with a blue background and my name uh, will be associated with Epicenter Innovation. Wonderful. Wonderful. My last question to you, Christopher, is that earlier they used to say that necessity is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. What about innovation? How would you say uh, who is the mother of innovation today? Is it resilience or there is something more to it? <laughs> I, I like that a lot. Uh, I, I definitely do agree with that quote. I think necessity does drive innovation, but I think more than that, people are the drivers of innovation. People are the, the driving force that make our, our organizations run, that make our societies 
work the way that they do that make our planet the way that it is. And I think, yeah, when humans are faced with need, when humans are faced with adversity, my belief is that they rise to that occasion. And if they are highly resilient, especially they then can innovate as a result of that experience. But people are the root of all innovation. Wonderful. People are the root of all innovation. On this positive note and people-centric note, it's a wrap on this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. Thanks for having me, AJ.